The following KOPN podcast is made possible by the generous donations of listeners like you. Please consider a donation to listener-supported community radio, KOPN. You can donate securely on our website at kopn.org. Hi, welcome to Food Sleuth Radio, where we help you think beyond your plate. I'm Melinda Hemmelgarn, a registered dietitian and investigative nutritionist on a mission to connect the dots between food, health, and agriculture and find food truth. And today I am delighted to welcome my guest, Ms. Laura Shapiro. She is a culinary historian and James Beard award-winning food columnist and book author. She has written on every food topic from champagne to jello in her decades-long career, which includes a 16-year running column for Newsweek, Features and reviews and essays in The New Yorker, The New York Times, Condé Nast Traveler, Gourmet, Gastronomica, Slate, and many others. She is also the author of several terrific books, including Perfection Salad, Women and Cooking at the Turn of the Century, Something from the Oven, Reinventing Dinner in 1950s America, Julia Child, and most recently, What She Ate, Six Remarkable Women and the Food that Tells Their Stories. Ms. Shapiro also co-curated an exhibition called Lunch Hour New York City, and she was featured in Michael Pollan's Netflix documentary series, Cooked. Welcome, Laura. It is a delight to have you with me. Thank you very much. You know, I was interested. You also, in addition to all of your other awards and accolades, you won an award from the National Women's Political Caucus. What did you win that for? I was writing for Newsweek for many years, and uh, Newsweek didn't do a huge amount on feminism and the women's movement, but occasionally there was a story, and it was right around the time of Susan Faludi's book on women and the women's movement, and all of the Anita Hill sessions on Congress, that whole awakening that the country seemed to go through about women at that moment. And I wrote a story on that, which won an award from the National Women's Political Caucus, which is great to have on my resume, even though it has nothing to do with food. (laughs) Exactly. I was intrigued, for sure. And actually, why don't we springboard from that and talk about what she ate, Six Remarkable Women and the Food that Tells Their Stories. I discovered this book and dove into it, checking different chapters about the different women. And the one that I started with Maybe this is a bad habit because I I never start at the beginning of books. But I I stumbled on Helen Gurley Brown. And I remember her from, of course, the famous Cosmo magazine. And what I found most interesting about her was her, well, I immediately diagnosed her with an eating disorder, which she eventually recognizes that, yes, indeed, she has. But at the very end, you know, she's asked about feminism And her famous feminist that she identifies, of course, is Gloria Steinem, who was always, you write, Helen's favorite feminist. And Gloria really wanted her to speak out and speak about her feminist inklings. And Helen Gurley Brown was reluctant to do that. That's right. Helen Gurley Brown thought of herself as a feminist. And I don't know, depending how you define the term She probably did suit some of it. She was certainly in favor of most of the things that most feminists talk about all the time in terms of equal pay, abortion, the whole deal. But she treasured for all her life this view of a woman's goal 
being to catch a man. The idea that to have a man in your life is always the most important thing. She thought women could do absolutely anything on earth, and she wanted them to do anything on earth, but if they did it without a man in their life, then it was pretty sad. And that kind of fealty to men ran through her whole life and had a tremendous effect on her whole sense of self and her body image, which was that she was determined to remain what she would have called young and sexy and attractive until her dying day. So at the time that she had this interview with Gloria Steinem, she was, you know, well past middle age, I would say, and weighed very little because she was certainly close to anorexia, if not full-fledged. But she loved talking to Gloria Steinem, and, and Gloria Steinem has a great ability to kind of see into people. She's a very perceptive person. She knew that there was a serious person inside that, you know, all the makeup and the wig and the fashion and all that. She knew there was a serious person in there. And in this interview, she said to Helen, she said, say something about yourself. Take yourself seriously. Tell me the most important, serious thing about you. And Helen Gurley Brown tried and she hemmed and hawed. Finally, she said, I'm skinny. I'm skinny. Yeah. How sad. And how sad that she was, she prepared food in anorectic style. She prepared these elaborate breakfasts for her husband. She did not eat with him. They ate separately. And she ate jello, a package of jello for dessert, which she diluted rather than using the four cups of water to the box of jello she only used one cup of water she topped it with a dollop of yogurt and she called that heaven yes and that was diet jello yes yes so that which was the key to this whole thing yeah uh, she loved these artificial sweeteners she had an enormous sweet tooth and I think that when she went off of her various diets she did it by binging on sweets I mean it's a Sure, a classic syndrome that you have seen a million times. And this, she had such a passion for artificial sweeteners. I don't know. To me, it seems so symbolic. It sort of says everything right there. Yes. You know the flavor of those things. It's that kind of chemical, acrid aftertaste. And I feel as though she went through her culinary life anyway with phony sweeteners, fake desserts, make-believe indulgences, And it's just kind of a symbol of the sadder part of her life. Yeah. And it's also a snapshot, I think, of the time. So we were going through this revolutionary time, really, with women's liberation. We were being extremely conscious about the way we looked, especially in the office. There was a sexual revolution going on. And Helen Gurley Brown was really the voice of that era. And you explore that time and other times in women's lives. And I know I'm jumping around here, but I was also really fascinated by your work out of Something from the Oven, Reinventing Dinner, and an article that you wrote about cake mixes and how women were basically told that they didn't have time to cook from this food industry that wanted to sell us processed and packaged foods. But really, women knew how to cook. We really didn't need those products, but yet we were sold on them. Yes, this is such an interesting moment, these years right after World War II. And, you know, the 50s is the most 
disparaged decade in American life in terms of food. Everybody makes fun of it, but the fact is, it's not that. It is not what we keep hearing. The fact is, it was a pretty good era for food in a lot of ways. The food industry was starting to make its way into people's houses, but they weren't there yet, and a lot of women were resisting. Because you're right, they just didn't need these packaged foods. All the advertising kept saying, we'll do it faster, leave the hard work to us, don't cook that old-fashioned way with all the drudgery and spending hours in the kitchen. You know, you can open a box and be out and go to the PTA meeting and take care of your children, and you don't have to spend these horrible hours in the kitchen. So the only way they could really sell these products was to try to convince people that their lives would be so much better if they didn't cook. These were women who understood perfectly well that cooking was not a big deal. It was fine. They knew how to cook. They'd been doing it all their lives. And you have to remember, in the late 40s and the 50s, cooking, making a simple dinner was easier than it had ever been for any civilization probably in the history of the world. I mean, this is a country where most people had running water. They had indoor plumbing. They had gas and electricity. They could go to markets where they would buy the chicken was already plucked and the vegetables were cleaned. It was not difficult to cook, and women knew that. And also meals were much simpler than they had been. You were not having these multi-course events anymore. Meals were shorter and simpler. So it was no big deal to get a meal on the table, so the food industry had to advertise very hard and strong and consistently over a long time to get that message drum it into people's heads. Eventually, they were pretty successful. And a lot of these packaged foods are obviously now part of our lives, but they haven't taken over. I think people still cook, and we're not cooking as much, obviously, as we did in earlier generations, but we haven't lost it. It's still the supermarkets are full of real food, and people take it home and they cook it. This idea that America is a land where nobody steps into a kitchen, I think it's quite false. Mm-hmm. I agree. And it's interesting. There was an interview that you did with Gourmet Magazine called, it was Gourmet Live, and you would receive 10 questions. And you talk about cooking as people having a yen to do it, and that you describe cooking as not a frill, but as a survival skill. And when I saw that you had referred to cooking that way, I thought, oh my gosh, we are kindred spirits. Because I remember with my own children, they're grown now, of course, but teaching them that it's just like learning how to swim. You need to learn how to feed yourself. These are indeed survival skills. And yet I grew up in the, I guess it was, I'm trying to think when I took home economics in high school, it must have been in the early 70s. And I suffered with what you also described, you know, these home economics courses, which were really ways that the food industry got us to use their products. I was so disappointed, I remember. We used like a hot cocoa mix and we used a box to make pancakes. I thought we should be, you know, we should be making these things from scratch. And you also wisely state that if we're going to change the world, and I think it is possible and essential that we change quickly through food, that we get back to home economics in a way where we we have intelligent home economics, where we teach people how to cook and appreciate where our food comes from. Yes, I think there was nothing wrong with that original impulse on the part of the early home economists to just educate a generation of girls and uh, to 
give them credit. They thought boys should be educated, too, in the basic skills of cooking. And they said uh, also, you know, keeping a household budget and principles of cleanliness and whatnot. But cooking was definitely part of it. And then that whole thing was kind of hijacked by the home economics movement. But it is a survival skill. And this yen to cook, I remember so strongly during the time that I was at Newsweek, I was the food writer. And so my office was always stacked with millions of cookbooks. And these younger people would come by. They were interns at Newsweek, or they had a beginning job there, and they had just gotten out of school or journalism school, and this was their first job. They had just moved to New York. So these were kids who had just gotten to New York, and they were having a great time and going out all the time. And now they were a little sick of it, and they used to, and, and they wanted to stay home, and they wanted to cook. And they would come into my office and look around and say, do you have anything that's just for a complete beginner, something that really just starts by teaching you to boil water. And I often did because there are a number of those books around all the time. They had a yen to cook. They were tired of going out all the time. They were beyond their school years. They were starting to be, you know, real grown-ups. They wanted to have a life and they wanted to do some cooking at home. And I think people have that. Mm -hmm. I think this eating out all the time or ordering out all the time I don't think it comes naturally to all of us. I really don't. Right. Well, there's something very rewarding about preparing food and feeding those that you love. And Michael Pollan touched on that in his series with in Netflix in which you were a part. But I want to touch on that because I think that we probably have listeners that are wondering, just as I am, do you have a favorite beginner cookbook? There's one, I'm going to walk right over to my shelf and look at it now. This is, it's really beginner. It's by Marion Cunningham, and it's called Cooking with Children. And, of course, it's very basic, so it's sort of, it's too beginning for an adult beginner. But you would look at that book, and you would see some early principles. Now, Marion Cunningham also wrote a book called Learning to Cook, and that would be for more more your listeners' age. And again, she just goes through these basic things. Marion Cunningham was the woman who, when the Fanny Farmer cookbook was brought back by Knopf after many years out of print, she was hired to be the new Fanny Farmer and to redo, to revise and bring up to date this great Bible of the American kitchen that many generations of women had learned on, and she did that. And in fact, her version of the Fanny Farmer cookbook is actually a very good basic cookbook. But in learning to cook, she herself was a cooking teacher for many years, and she just puts together a lot of the lessons that she knew how to give to beginning cooks. Another really good way to start is Mark Bittman's How to Cook Everything, which isn't necessarily aimed at beginners, but it's kind of the first basic recipe you need for millions of things and a very good way to move into doing some cooking. Mm -hmm. But, you know, these, I'm looking at the ones that are just on my shelf, and I haven't looked in bookstores for these recently at all. I'm sure there are new ones out there that are as good or better than these. People can find them. There are ways to do this. Mm Mm-hmm. 
I need to take one break and let me remind our listeners that if you're just joining us, you are tuned into Food Sleuth Radio, where we are joined by Laura Shapiro, culinary historian and James Beard award-winning food columnist. She is the author of multiple books. The one I have with me right now is titled What She Ate, Six Remarkable Women and the Food That Tells Their Stories. Before we jump back into this book, I want to just add my own observations with regard to the books that I feel especially kindred to. One is a book that my husband brought to the marriage, and it's a basic Betty Crocker cookbook with the red Ah, cover. You know, if you want to learn how to do just a basic cheese sauce, how to make a basic soup, you don't need to buy things in cans. It's very quick and very easy. I've often thought when I see people driving through the drive through for these fast food restaurants that fast food is neither, and it's much quicker to do it at home. But we should jump into this book because we have limited time, and I was really intrigued by your work. And I want to know what led you to certainly write about food at the very start, but also what led you to these six women out of so many women that you could have chosen? Well, some of these women... I think of them as just kind of waiting in my filing cabinet for me to write about them. Barbara Pym, for instance, who's a British novelist whom I write about here. This is somebody whose books I started reading years ago, and I loved them. She's a unique, very funny sensibility, and the books are full of food. I just fell in love with them, and I've been kind of waiting for years for a chance to write about her. And because she is so food-oriented, when I got the idea for this book, I thought, oh, goody, at last I can write about Barbara Pym. So that was one of the great treats. Then there was Helen Gurley Brown, whom we talked about, and I had written an obituary of hers, and that got me thinking about her. So again, when the idea for this book came around, I thought, you know, there's Helen Gurley Brown. She was a serious sort of pathological dieter. That was a relationship with food that illuminates everything else in her life. She belongs in this book. So I kind of pulled them in that way. It was not that easy to find all the people because you know, for a book like this, you actually you need to know the history of their relationship with food over the years, which means there has to be a paper trail. They had to have written about it themselves in their diaries and memoirs and letters, or it had to be in other biographies of them. You need to get the information somewhere. And most people, if you're a 19th century woman writing a diary or writing letters, you don't normally write about food. These people wrote about the weather. They wrote about Aunt Sally coming to lunch, but they never said what they ate. So I had to eliminate a lot of possible people because there just was not a paper trail. And I don't know, let's see, Eleanor Roosevelt came to me because I knew about the FDR White House. I knew that when the Roosevelts were in the White House all those years, the food was famously terrible. Everybody wrote about it. And, but it was intriguing to me because Eleanor just didn't seem like the kind of person who didn't care about her guests. She was famous for being kind of warm and hospitable and welcoming people. And people used to say they would come to the White House and they were so nervous, but they would meet her and she would immediately put them at ease. I just couldn't see her as just kind of dismissing as unimportant the fact that People were just kind of pushing this food around on their plate and sending the plate back. Well, there were reasons why. The more I looked into it, the more I could see that her own relationship with food was very interesting. It was fraught with overtones to do with her past and her marriage and her 
feeling about life and the world. Everything was in there. So again, there was a story there that was just kind of waiting to come out. For each woman, there was just some little mystery about her that I wanted to dig out. Mm-hmm. Well, the hardest one for me to read about was Eva Braun. And yes, and she was certainly the hardest for me to write about. So no question on that. And first of all, it was not easy to, to get the material because she left very little written record of her own life. And I had to work around it. I had to find out what was on the table She's sitting there next to Hitler. What is being served to them? And and I was able to find that, but I had to come to terms with the fact that I was writing about this really horrible person. I had never done that. I had never written about somebody that, you know, was just so appalling. And yet that was the unknowable thing about her that I wanted to get to. I thought, you know, if if food will give me an insight mm. into this awful person and this terrible relationship, maybe food really does have some power to tell us things, you know. So if food can get me closer to Eva Braun, maybe it really is a good way to look at the world. And I think I did learn some things, but it was it was not easy to do, believe me. Yeah, it was difficult to read. It made the story of the starvation, the purposeful withholding of food from groups deemed unworthy and in contrast, the rich spreads that were on the table. And as much as that chapter is about Eva, there's a lot about Hitler's eating habits, really disgusting foods that he ate. So that was challenging. And I, I think that that's what this book, why it's so powerful, is it does help us realize just how important food is in our lives today and our history and moving forward into our future. Well, if it can open up some of those avenues of thought in the people who read it, I will be very, very happy. I do think that to look at the world through food is really enlightening and shows us a lot, really. And it was a great experience working on the book. Agony, writing is agony, but but I learned a huge amount, I must say, doing it. Is there anybody else of the six women that you would like to pull forth from this book? That What did each of these women teach you? Well, I learned something about uh, the nature of class, really, from writing about Rosa Lewis, who was a caterer in Edwardian England, and she was born into a poor working-class family, a Cockney family in 1867. She pulled herself up kind of by her own bootstraps. She became a scullery maid. That was her first job. And then uh, little by little, she learned French cooking. It's not quite clear how. And she became one of the most sought-after caterers in London at a time when uh, food was hugely important. Escoffier was kind of the leading cook of that time. And To be a caterer in those high, noble circles meant that you were cooking this elaborate French food. She turned that stuff out, and she really became a huge success and made quite a bit of money. And she used her new status to mingle with these upper-crust people, and that was extremely important to her. She loved that, but she clung to her Cockney accent. As you know about the British, accent is everything. Accent is the key to your class. It's your class identity, and anybody can place you 
on the class ladder from the way you talk. So even though Rosa Lewis might sweep into the drawing room and sit down and have a cup of tea with the lady of the house as soon as she opened her mouth, it was quite clear who she was, and she did that on purpose. She was living at a time when people were very accent conscious, and she could have gotten rid of that accent. There were ways, you know, you could do elocution and so forth and change your accent as uh, Eliza Doolittle does in My Fair Lady, which was right at that time. Rosa Lewis didn't have that. She wanted to be accepted as herself, so she wanted to both raise her class and also be accepted for her class. Very, very interesting combination, and I have never read or known of a story like that. You hear a lot about changing class and leaving your class behind and so forth. She wanted it both ways. So it was uh, terrifically interesting that way. Well, we just have a couple of minutes left, and so I am going to jump to the afterword of the book in which you describe your own food story and how fascinating that shortly after you were married, you moved to India. Do you have any remembrances from that time about the food environment that you want to share with our listeners? We lived in a town that was a major pilgrimage site for worshippers of Krishna, people who followed the god Krishna. So it was a busy town, but they didn't have a lot of Westerners there. They had a number of Hare Krishnas from the West, but people like me that were not a lot of. There were not a lot of Western women going around riding bikes, for instance. So I didn't feel free to go out and do a kind of food travel the way so many of us would love to do. The food was wonderful, i got to say. My own cooking was terrible, as I write in that afterward, but the food everywhere, even in this relatively small place that was very traditional and certainly none of the really fancy, glamorous Indian restaurants that are in India now that people go to wasn't like that at all. You got very simple stuff, but the friends whose houses we ate at, oh, it was was just a beautiful home cooking of that time and place. Just these simple vegetable things. Everybody, of course, a vegetarian and the simple local seasonal vegetables. I would go to the market and the women would be sitting on the ground and surrounded by just what they had brought in that day from some little plot of ground that they took care of somewhere. So there'd be some carrots and tomatoes and this and that. And I would try to speak Hindi in the market and stumble through my awkward request, you know, may I have one half pound of tomatoes. They would smile and give it to me. Everything was delicious. Every simple thing, the tomatoes, of course, I had soaked them in this iodine solution, but even so, you could get some tomato flavor through that and cooking them. They still tasted delicious. The yogurt, I still remember the yogurt. There was, oh, I didn't know even that there was a category of food called yogurt that could taste like that. It was the real thing. In fact, the milkman, we would have to buy the milk and butter every day, and then, you know, the milk had come in from being milked. It was the real thing. Somebody like me who grew up in a suburb, I had never seen food that came right out of the earth like that, right right from the hand of farmers and milkmen. I had never seen that or tasted it before. Well, we'll have to end our conversation with that, but I would like to close with the last line of your book, which says, I was starting to understand home cooking. The important word was home. 
And I think that if our listeners are interested at all in the magic of food, they should definitely visit much of your work, which is available on your website, which is simply www.lauraschapirowriter.com. And you can get a sampling, a buffet of all of your great work. I want to close by thanking our listeners for joining us and remind everyone that Food Sleuth Radio is produced by Dan Hemmelgarn at KOPN Studios in beautiful downtown Columbia, Missouri. Thank you so much, Laura Shapiro, culinary historian, James Beard Award-winning food columnist and book author. And her latest book, which we just touched on, is titled What She Ate, Six Remarkable Women and the Food That Tells Their Stories. Thank you for being with me. Thanks very much. Thanks very much.